0: You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. talk about national service. when We talk about the draft. Um, I have to tell you that I start this year as a beneficiary of, in a certain way, of someone who avoided the draft. And that was my grandfather. Now, you know, he was, again, you have to know what the situation was in in Lita when he was conscripted at the end of the 19th century. Um, And the fact was, is that his brother, who I'm named after, uh, decided to go a second term. Now, what exactly the amount of years each one had to go for? It was a number of years that my uncle, my granduncle. Uh, named, well, I'm named after Avram or Avremel, uh served on behalf of my grandfather. My grandfather was Rabbi Yisrael Yishai, eventually um, a moira a Dayan in Lodge. He died, of course, very young. I've spoken about his death in the cholera epidemic, but of course, not before he was able to sire my father, who did make it out of Europe, uh, obviously, and that's when, of course, I was born here. Had my grandfather served, um, I don't know what sort of conflicts were raging during that period, but obviously my granduncle was able to deal with it. My great-grandfather said Shia shouldn't go to the army. So in other words, my uh, granduncle took my the identity of my grandfather and went to serve in his place. I have to tell you that because of that love, and part of the reason was, was because my grandfather was perceived as a Talmud Chochem, and indeed he was. He was, a, again, I, it's, you're not really supposed to brag about your your, your parents or grandparents, but he was known uh, throughout the family as a Boki Bishas and as someone who um, deserved to stay in learning, who should stay in learning, who should always learn. And therefore, my great-grandfather realized that this uh, decree, as it were, um, that you know, he was now his number or name got called up, should be deferred in some way. Now, he didn't just hire somebody else. Uh, Willingly, my granduncle stepped up to the plate and took it upon himself to do this. So in a way, this is really close to my heart. Um, But there was an amount of subterfuge, which perhaps was sanctioned at the time. And really this that happened at the end of the 19th century with my family was something that for hundreds of years was occurring, which was when the draft numbers came up, when you were supposed to be picked, could you get out of it? Was there a way for a community to get out of it? There was a certain time in history where, uh, and again, in different parts of Europe, things were different, where the communities had to provide a certain number of people. Um, Now, Most infamously, of course, was what was known as the Cantonist uh, decree. Now, that was, again, something that was um, Tsar Alexander I, that uh, was from 1825 to 1855, in the areas that were held by Russia. Uh, Again, the exact lands where this was relevant was a a huge swath of, 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 of places where many Jews lived. And this, of course, uh, for the for 30 years, there was um, – and it was a very cruel and terrible uh, situation. What happened was there in the Cantonists was that they were forced um, to take – they took children, officially from the age of 12. But the reports indicate that they were taking kids even at the age of 8 or 9 and taking them to places where what we would call um, – Uh, you know, camps where they would need to uh, uh, reorganize their mind, Uh, camps where they would be debriefed and changed in order to start eventually their service at 18 for 25 years. So these kids were taken away from their families, some of them as young as nine or 10, and then taken uh, to places where we know based on the Independent reportage of the Russian government at the time, there were huge attempts to to cause the children to go undergo baptism, uh, to uh, t- to actually throw away their Judaism, and then twenty five years in an army uh, where the the expectation, of course, was that they would not only serve the country but also serve the country in a way that they would obliterate totally and completely. Uh, we know uh, based on historical Estimates, I think, by Savo Baron and others, they were talking of probably of about sixty thousand uh, children, and that doesn't sound like a, a tremendous amount considering the three or four million Jews that were living in this area. But those are sixty thousand people, and most of them were completely lost. Now, great tragedy it was. The tragedy is really made worse by the fact that in this in this cantonist uh, situation. The communities, in order to avoid this terrible decree, what they would do is they would find others to take the places of their own children. Uh, when the community need to, needed to provide someone, they would take others. And when I say take, I meant really take. Um, and it, it's worthwhile as
1: we begin this just to understand how delicate and terrible uh, the situation is. Um, there are, there are um, a number of
0: um, descriptions of the outrage that Rabbonim felt, but let me say it even better, that later Rabbonim felt towards what had become for 20, 30 years and longer standard practice. The standard practice that, that these later Rabbonim were outraged was, was finding people sometimes orphans and others, who didn't have the economic wherewithal, that didn't have the aristocratic standing in the community, to take the place or to be the children that would be the ones that would be sent away. In other words, the Russian community didn't necessarily, wasn't organized enough that your name came up specifically in the draft. And this, of course, was a, was a halakhic issue, was were you the one that was called? Does the community need to provide a certain number of people? And that's the way it started. There was enough autonomy and a, 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 a lack of, of efficient uh, ability to know to zero in on who's who that the community was then told okay, you send somebody, send 10 people. The community needed to do that. So they would search the, the leaders of the community, the rabbonim in the community. Would find the weakest members, and those were the ones that they would send to hell.
1: And um, I think I said Alexander here. It says it's Nikolai the first, um, and you can see um, Rabbi Shmuel Salanter uh, tried to have this
0: decree nullified um he tried to raise money lobbying important government officials um he said that he died young because of this as you can see rabbi Thoreau railed against the Rosh they felt they had no choice other than to assist the government in kidnapping jewish children in order to fill the requisite quota In the city of Salant, where Rav Yisrael returned, the government demanded that a child be drafted for the army. The community leaders immediately turned their sights to a child from poor families. At that time, a poor widow arrived in town. She was an inter- <laughs> uh, 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 itinerant beggar who would play musical instruments in the main city thoroughfares in the hopes that merciful Jews would throw her pennies from which she could sustain herself and her young orphan son. Under pressure to comply with the government decree, the community leaders saw this orphan child as the answer to their dilemma. They kidnapped the child, changed his name to that one of the local children, and handed him over to the commanding army officer. The blood-curdling cries of the poor mother, a widow who lived solely for her son, reached the very heavens. The woman ran around town in a crazed frenzy, screaming and begging for the return of her son. She pulled out her hair. She mutilated her skin. She suffered a complete breakdown. She banged on the doors of the Gabbayim of the city. They turned a deaf ear to her cries. Rabbi Yusrael Salanter was visiting Russia and came and was spending Shabbos there. The woman who had been raging saw a distinguished looking man. She fell at his feet. She begged him. Rabbi Yisrael listened to her
1: and tried to placate her, asking that she return to him after Shabbos.
0: Rabbi Yisrael Salantar, who was the esteemed guest, he went to the main shul. He didn't say anything. But after davening, there was a kiddish in the home of the, of, of, of the Rosh HaKol. They said kiddish. Rabbi Yisrael stood up as if he was going to say Adrosha.
1: And he's called them murderers, kidnappers. You think you're a tzaddik, he said to one. You put a pachayla, a handkerchief, around your neck because you don't want to leave the Eruv. But what about the Pasa? Kidnapping someone. You're so machmir, he said to another one. But here you are sending a kid
0: for shmad. To a third one, he said, you eat the most chomer Shmuramats on Pesach. Your esrig is so mohuder but don't you care about being ma'ana, a yosem, an almona. That's misa b'deishamayim. Every single person there, he called out publicly. None of them could open their mouths. He jumped out of his chair and he said, it's also for me to stay in this city. He he left the city, slammed the door behind them, left the city. And
1: in fact, I don't know if he went out of the tchum, but he might have been they They did what they could they tried to to get the child back. They say that Revolio Cartagena,
0: who was one of Rabistrel'slaners Yisrael me them, was searching
1: for Yisrael, walking in the mountains. And Rav said that, as you can see, he'd left on Shabbos, he left by on foot.
0: And Rav Yisroel, Rav said to him that the Gemara says about Rav Yochai, that when he came out of his cave and he saw people being involved in Ayol Mahaza, Rav Yochai looked at them and they immediately were burnt by this fire, because how can they be involved in such insignificant things? But a Baskol came out and said, Rav Shumar you're going to destroy the world. Rav Leo said to Rav Yisrael Salanter, you're right, but your attitude could destroy everyone.
1: Rav Shumar was right too. But still, there's a Baskol. Because as, this world is so difficult. The decree is so terrible. we have to do something Rave Caregener told her Mi Salanta that they did find the child, and they did bring him back.
0: Still, you can see from Raveo Cagener that there was this idea that there was people who demanded a higher standard of ethics and morality but the but the physical realities the The diplomatic realities of life didn't allow that. But there were people like Resolz-Lavante who felt that this giving in, in other words, basically saying, well, we can't fight the draft. We have to, we've been given quote unquote, some equal rights and citizenship. But what we're going to do is instead send the lowest people there, the people that we don't care about. And we know that, um, Many of these people ended up, of course, never coming back to Yiddishkeit. They say, and I, I heard this from a Professor Ekman, who died last year in COVID, who wrote um, a, a, a wonderful monograph, a book on the Chafetz Chaim, that the Chafetz Chaim also was extremely pained by this. And he would, whenever he would find someone who had been sent service and the Cantonist um, over the Cantonist uh, decrees he would go over to them and kiss them, hug them tell them that the fact that they even had one uh, element of Jewish identity left was an indicator of how much how close they were to God and how much he felt close to them Dr. Eckman theorized that one of the reasons why the Chafetz Chaim involved himself so much in, in, in writing the book Chafetz Chaim about Lashon Hara and about Musr was because he saw, right, Rabbi Shaul Salant, and both of these giants saw, that this, what happened in the reaction to the drafts throughout Europe, revealed almost the worst elements in our community. The elements that looked at a terrible reality and then the the, the reaction to that was one that, that in a way was even worse. Yes, it was terrible that the Tsar had made these decrees on these children. But the idea of replacing your community's child with other children, that was unconscionable and instead of trying to do whatever they could, and I'm sure there were attempts to 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 raise money to stop things, but what this reaction in the most difficult situation really brought out
1: the 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 ugly individualistic um, concern only for
0: the ones who had, and not the had nots which goes against, primarily against all the ideas of Musa and Derech Eretz and humanity. So therefore, what we're dealing with is something that clearly had been a very ugly blotch on our history. Um, It was different in various, as I said, in various places. So I start with the um, outrage of Salanter and... Kagan, Rabbi Salant the because it's not a pretty um, uh, page in our history at all. However, um, I do think that we can gain much from viewing the, the rabbinic responsa uh, about this. I don't have rabbinic responsa from Salam Salant the I have their, their reaction to what had been the rabbinical approach. So I want to start with, uh, if if you don't mind, a tshuva from someone who is considered, in a sense, the greatest of the late 18th and 19th century in terms of his tshuvas. That's, of course, the chassam sofer. Um, I have to say that after uh, compiling information in this area, uh, I was alerted to an article that was written by Professor Judith Bleich. She is uh, Rabbi Yosef uh, David Bleich's Rebetzin, his wife. And she wrote, uh, I guess, a groundbreaking article in this uh, area in 2006, which I was unaware of until a couple of minutes before uh, I'm giving this year. So um, she she did a lot of the work uh, that I, she could have, I could have saved some time had I uh, found her uh, article about this. On the other hand, uh, I will read to you a tshuva from the Chassam Sofer. Now, this, is, uh, this was printed in the Lekutei Tshuva's Chassam Sofer, which means after they printed the uh, most of what they found, they ended up saying, here's a bunch of other stuff as well. What year it was printed originally is not on my fingertips right now. But I know that the tshuva dates, as you can see here, from 1830. Now, the Chassam Sofer, I'm not sure who the rov he's writing to and was it under the Cantonist decrees or was it in other countries where Jews were expected to serve. The Tshuva um, has a number of issues in it, most of them not relevant to us, but here's one that is. As you can see, the Jews were asked to serve in the military. yofam it's better for us to be quiet than to speak about this. The Gedolah Yisro, now this is the part that when I read, I almost had a conniption. Gedolah Yisro, which includes some sofer, al they are forced, Yalimu Ayan, to close their eyes. Because basically, they know that the military would mean a life, whether it was the 40-something years In Russia or whatever the amount of years in the other countries it was not going to be a situation that the child the young man who was brought into that would be able to sustain his religiosity so therefore to say we're going to dodge the draft we're going to avoid it the Rabbonim need to in a way remove themselves not the rabbonim, but the lay leaders to do what they think is right. It's a time to be quiet. So right away, it sounds like and instead of the idea of assuming the mantle of moral and halakhic leadership in a public way, The Chesom Sofer is admitting to his student, this Noah Gabriel, that we know what's going on. We know the community leaders are already dealing with this in an on-the-ground fashion. And what they are doing, you are going to discover in a couple of minutes. But even though some of it might be anathema, and might be very painful to hear, it's important to sort of realize that we are in a bind. And therefore, we we should let, in a way, perhaps whisper somewhat in their ears, but realize they've already taken hold, the community leaders, the same ones that Salanter upbraided and defamed and rightfully cursed. Remember what he did? He actually, it's possible if the story is true, that he was Machal Shabbos to leave the town, that he felt that it was important to make a statement, as I said earlier, to go out of the city even more than 2,000 Amos. Which is a chilu to make a point that this was a town of evildoers of what they what they were doing. That's not what Rabbi Shal, That's not what the Sofer did. Sam Sofer said that we the communal leaders are doing their thing, but you, I need to say he says Goof Inyan Malchusa. The idea of citizens being part of an army is correct. Now, maybe what was doing in the Cantonist decrees might have been specifically aimed at Jews more than others. And maybe that wasn't. But the basic idea that every able-bodied person needs to serve is is part of what it means to live in in a country. And that is what a king is meant to do. And therefore, it's not against us. If you are someone who has, who is meant to serve. Now, it seems like this, the place that some sayf is
1: talking about, that people who were married with children could get a deferral. And that was the law.
0: Therefore, they would have to serve. The next section of this chasam sofer really takes us into a different discussion altogether. And that is about the idea of drafting yeshiva students. Now, I gave a shiur uh, this past Sunday about this topic. Um, and you can hear it on our platform. Um, and the idea of, uh, and, and I know that for some of you listening here, it's a very important one. Some Sofer here is not talking about, of course, the IDF drafting yeshiva students. He's saying in general, there is a we have a history of people who are really involved in Torah, not to, uh, for them not to be serving in such a fashion, and he bases this on the Gemara and Baba Basra, um, and his basic idea is that even when we have control of our destiny. People are actively involved in learning Torah and becoming hopefully great leaders. He says those people should not be involved uh, in uh, uh, going out, not just because it's the threat of them dying. In general, the activities of being on the front lines is similar to what the Gemara Baba Basra talks about, about them digging ditches. And that's not meant for B'nai Torah. And therefore, he says, The way the Chesam Sofer understands, he says that the government actually has a clergy dispensation. The Chesam Sofer has already, as the Rove of Preshberg, as considered one of the more important rabbis, or if not the most important rabbi of, his, of, his, of that whole area, he said he's are written, he, are, he has written testimonies to the people in Pihim, which is Bohemia, Merin, Moravia, Shei Mulomdim, So he has written on behalf of various draftees that they are indeed rabbinic scholars and they, can, they will be clergymen and therefore he was able to get for them dispensations. That's what the Sofer says here. Um, so, um, and he says that, leave those people alone. And he's already tried. Uh, now, again, we can debate whether they were all deservant of that or not, but there was in the decrees in the law that there was, again, a way out for someone married
1: and also for someone who was clergy. Um I have to tell you that those of us
0: that are old enough to remember the Vietnam War, remember that in the mid-60s, when the draft was at its height, there it was also a uh, concurrent uptick. Uh, and I would say it's more than just an uptick. <laughs> it was an incredible increasing of 20 30 40% of the amount of students that went to Yeshivot there was there was the rabbinical colleges rabbinical schools and seminaries and i would say it was across the board whether with orthodox conservative or reform had an incredible uh, advancements in those days of people that were there and that was because they were taking advantage of the clergy deferral of someone who was studying for the clergy and that was something that was even here when the draft was mandatory
1: um The Chassam when the Chassam Sofer writes about this topic in his commentary on Baba
0: Basra, this was actually in a manuscript uh, that was not printed in the original edition of the uh, when the when the when the sefer was printed. It's only in the latter part of the 20th century that this manuscript has come to light. The Sofer says that based on the Gemara that says that even when the Jews are controlling things in their city, that the yeshiva students should not be uh, forced to actually dig the ditches uh, to create the water supply. He says, Based on this piece of Talmud, uh, I was able to justify the idea of not expecting the yeshiva students to to be the ones who need to follow the draft orders because they don't do this type of work. Then he says, and therefore, as we saw before, he would write write, uh, testimony saying that these were students that he knew would become preachers uh, and would be clergy. But then he says Then afterwards, there was other ways out. There was other ways out where the government you can just pay them off. in other words, instead of the fairness that every community has to send or you get your draft number, the community could raise money and pay. And this way the government will take the money and find someone else who would be like a paid soldier to take the place of that other person. So So what he said was then that I told uh, the, the, the families of those yeshiva boys that they should pay the money. And this way, even if it turns out that, that, that another king or another Congress will meet or whatever it was uh, and, and decide that it's going to be service again, you can't pay your way out of service. They could at least show that the
1: documentation that they paid already. So basically, what you see here is that uh, that the situation did indeed it was
0: fluid. There were times where the Hussam Sofer said, okay, you'll use this dispensation. There were other times where he felt we need to raise money to pay off that they shouldn't be serving. On the other hand, as I mentioned to you before, the Sam Sofer did say that it was not something terrible and illegal. It was something that if you weren't from the yeshiva world, that you were protecting the planet, whatever the way you understand that, that you should serve in the army. And therefore, once some software says that uh, this community is given their marching orders, so to speak, to provide someone, he says, So if the community is supposed to present 20 young, able-bodied men to go serve, how is this community supposed to decide that? So the Chamsover comes up with something which has, in our history, always been the way to decide. Now, let me explain something. It was clear that the Chamsover and every community knew that joining that military would be not only physically difficult, but would, 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 it, it would entail extreme religious challenges. However, it wasn't specifically meant to eliminate religion as perhaps the Cantonists' decree was. And therefore, the community needed, the Sofer said, to acquiesce. Now, how do we decide who goes? So the Sofer says what they should do is make a gyro, which as we know is a lottery system. And this, we know, has halachic ramifications throughout. There's an idea that we didn't pick one person specifically. We did a lottery, and whoever the lottery comes up is, whether it's who draws the short stick, whoever gets the go is the one that needs to serve. the Khazam Sofer says, it could be that now that you have to serve, if there's some way that there's an option for you to pay your, to buy your way off, then that's what you have to do. Maybe, in fact, Ola Hamid Achar Bimkomo Maybe you can find someone who is willing to take money from you to take your place. Oh, if you can't do that, ye'elich That person, the lottery came out on him. He's the one that the, she got the short stick, the short end of the stick, so to speak. And therefore, he's got to go and serve. However, once that occurs, the rest of the community is bound to try to help him. And and in a way, they could raise funds to try to get him out of service because they know that this is going to be difficult for him to remain a religious Jew and he might be forced, of course, to eat non kosher and to do other acts of chil Shabbos. But he says, and here we find what the what Rav Yisrael Salanter said many years later, and the so knew what was happening to force people who not using a lottery system, not using uh, drawing lots, and to say about them, which is what the rabbis perhaps and the community leaders would say, ah, they're bums, they're poichs and varek, and look at these kids draying around, even if they're megalei arayas machalei shabbos. So even though by 1830, there was a group of youths that people might view as thugs, they don't care anyway, what do they care? They're, they're from our community, but we see what they're doing. We see they're not keeping Shabbos. We see they're running around with shixas Okay, so you know what? We are gonna push these kids to go. Some safer said, Nefesh just like Rabisol Solanthar said. That is going to nefesh Right? If there would be a lottery system, listen to what he's saying, then the lottery that was taken now means I'll p din this is the one that has to serve. But for you to decide based on your uh, determination that this person is lax in religiosity and lax in adherence, and you're going to now force him to go, he says, that's, "That's what gives you the right to do that? And he said that, that basically, this, this is like the, the Halachic principle of a Moser, of someone who gives a Jew some money over to the authorities that we know the halach is, you kill such a person. And you let the person die, he says, and therefore the communal leaders, in a sense, are maistring, because they are actually zeroing in on people and, and throwing them to the lions. And therefore, he says that When someone who, because of the goro, now has to be has to serve, and the chasam knew that that would turn into a, a difficult situation, that they would they would have to violate shabbos and Kashras. They're Al mitzvahs baones. When that happens, they were forced to. Because to ref, to not to eat for a number of days to resist uh, a, 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 a an order that was specifically aimed at them would mean they would be put in the stockade and perhaps killed. So they are forced to 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 live a life of irrelig to adapt some irreligious aspects of their life, but they are forced to it, and the communal leaders that are in their own mind, thinking that they're they're preserving the greatness of their community, are actually doing an Avera Barotson. And this, again, aligns with Rabbi Sol Salanter. The problem I have with this, chuva up until this point is, is that, yes, thank you for writing this. But earlier in the paragraph, the Chassam Sofer said that we, in a way, the Talmud are removed from it. Like he says, he does have his moral outrage. And that is true. But the moral outrage needs to be put into perspective. What about the beginning of the of the paragraph, where he says, "The Gedolei Yisro are Malin Ayin from this." So even though they are not, they, they are writing these truvas that they hope would you know, penetrate into uh, into the calls of the communal leaders. They weren't willing to to take the mantle of leadership away from them. Um then he talks about something else there were many who realized that the that the religious community was afraid of sending their children their young men to serve and they would say look i'll go there were people who who basically said yeah i know it's not on me i served and i don't care because basically they know that they don't care about shabbos they don't care about not eating kosher. And they would. these people would arrive in the community and say, look, I am your hope. I'm going to help you. You've got trouble right here in your city. And you know what? I've got what, the, what it takes. And it's not uh, 76 trombones that's going to help you. It's me because I'm willing to take money from you and I'll go in your place. And these people used to do this. And there was bands of people who would willfully go in and do this. And the question was, can you accept them? Can you take their offer? He says, look, it sounds terrible, doesn't it? Because this guy's willing to go be Machal Shabbos on your, sort of on your behalf. He says,
1: look, it's Shikhetuva. It's not like when you agree to this person, Now you are
0: starting a movement of people who who are basically making money, taking, pocketing money from communities and saying, I'll serve in place of your kids. I'll go. You're gonna have to pay me for it though, but I'll go. Doesn't this create a, uh, a movement? Doesn't this create a group of people who are willing, knowingly, not because they were forced, not because the girl came on them, but jumping into that
1: service that they don't have to do in order uh, to make money. So he says it's happening anyway. Even the Shri Chetuva.
0: I'm not going to eliminate that. It's already naturally developed the. The, the fact that there are people who are making money uh, to serve. So therefore, it's not like if you say no to them, they're not going to find someplace else to do it. In other words, this person is almost being ordered by you to live a life of irreligiosity. And you are, in a way, paying him to continue that life. Isn't that lifnaivir? Isn't that helping someone deepen the Averus that they're doing? So some sofer says no. Because they would find someone else. If in community Yehuppits, they say, no, 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 we're not going to hire someone. We'll do the Goro on uh, whoever our child is, and then we'll pray for him, and then that person will go, we'll do whatever we can to get him out.
1: And the, um, the, the fellow who shows up, no, no. We don't want to deal
0: with you. Some for says you don't have to say that because he's going to go down the road. He's going to go to Shelbyville, and he'll fight if the if the citizens of Springfield aren't going to uh, to pay him, he'll go to Shelbyville, and then he'll find money over there. So therefore, you can pay him. That's what he says. So therefore, in a way, although. What that guy is doing is is, is ugly. He's willing to macaw himself to go into an atmosphere where he won't be able to keep mitzvahs. But you know what? It's a terrible thing. This is happening. But it's a takonak tsas. It does help. And this is what's happening everywhere. And look, it's bad but it's, it's, it's the lesser evil that we can use. He says, I know I haven't written in length. I don't want to have a written record about this subject. We can move on. And this is you know something you don't want to, he didn't want there to be an expansive description of this problem. Normally, the Chesam Sofer was not
1: above Sofer was not above uh, going into length about this topic, about
0: topics. But this was a topic he felt he needed to write in a cryptic, brief manner. Because, you know, if, this, if, if, if the wrong people got a hold of this and saw his opinion, it could have ramifications. And therefore, he says, we shouldn't really talk in length about this. And Va-shem this is what he says, and he blesses the person who sent it and says, You should get all the good things. So the Kshim Sofer, as you see, is not happy about the situation. But he says, Look, if these people are around, this is perhaps what we should do. Um, one of the students of Kshim Sofer, Kshim Sofer was, was not only the, a great posek, but he also developed what was considered almost the premier yeshiva in Hungary at the time, his yeshiva in Preshburg. And the, the rabbis who issued from there are a, are, are a stellar group. Some of the great, great poskim in, in the later part of the 19th century. The Maram Sheik, of course, Khm Sofer's own son, the Ksav Sofer, and the Maram Ash, Rav Meir Einstadter, who was known as the Maram Ash. Uh, in his chuvas that
1: you can see here, he writes that... Um, that he was asked
0: about this about 10 years later. And you can see that he was asked uh, by a Talmud of his, Rabbi Yitzchok, a, a, a very expert in Jewish history and bibliography tells me that this Rabbi Yitzchok who eventually became the Rav in Bergzatz, Bergzatz was, a, was an author. I don't, I, I, at this point, I don't know exactly his identity, but he was definitely a Talmud Chacham, And he was, Obviously upset about what was going on, he says, "I see that you are upset that in Hungary and other places that they're hiring these guys to go out there and serve on other people's behalf. If they're going to go and they're going to go and serve for you, and I see that you find this disgusting." But I want to tell you something, uh, Rev Mayor uh, uh, Einsteiner said. He said, um, Even in Poland, they're doing that. And nobody, and I've never heard someone say it's ulcer what they're doing. Now it's true. They are being malim ayin, the same words some cipher said. In a way, the Rabbanim are in a way like, turning their eyes away from it, maybe not dealing with it in the greatest way, what else can they find? So if the great rabbis of Poland, who were the pace-setters for so many years about Talmudic thought, if they are allowing this to happen, are we going to be different? And the truth is, he says, I really shouldn't even, I didn't even want to answer your question. But because my grandfather told me that you uh, spoke to my grandfather that you wanted an answer about this. And I was worried. My grandfather is going to think that I disrespected you if I didn't answer you. So I don't really believe I am disrespecting you because this is one of the types of questions I should say, I really can't write you an answer on this because I don't want to be the Maramash despite his power to fight against reform and others, he didn't want there to be necessarily a lengthy record of his feelings about this issue. But he says, look, I'm going to answer you. um, And I'm going to, again, similar to his Rebbe, that's i I'm not going to be at length, but I'm going to answer you anyway. And basically what he says is at the end, and he says, beginning and at the end, he says um, what's happening in terms of hiring other people to serve is a mitzvah. Uh, and this is the, what we can do. Um, and he brings
1: uh, uh, various proofs for this. And as he says that, obviously I am against forcing children and forcing people in it.
0: However, to hire people uh, we is much better than allowing the government itself to come and choose for us. Because we know they're going to take the young yeshiva boys, and we know, as my rebbe has pointed out, that some sifra pointed out that they should not be involved in this, even in a Jewish uh, situation, and therefore, it's not only mutter, but even goes further than his rebbe. He says it's a mitzvah to take advantage of this. Okay, so that was the situation in the mid nineteenth century, that there were people who were profiteers who were involved in this um, later uh, as the 19th century waned, that we start the beginning of the 20th century, we have very important shuvas from uh, Rabbi David Hoffman, who, although originally came from Hungary, eventually, of course, became the rector of the Hildesheimer Seminary in Berlin.
1: And I want to read to you his very important Shuva on this matter. And you can see here a totally different spirit. Again, the reality is that once you go into war, and to do your duty,
0: whether it's two or three years, you will, whether you're in the middle of fighting or not, be forced to mechalos Shabbos and yontif. You are a religious Jew. Should you do whatever you can. To get out of uh, out of uh, military service, because military service will mean you'll be Machal Shabbos, not necessarily in defending the country, but because of tr- because of training, because of maneuvers, because of what they're asking you to do. So Rav Davutzi often Hoffman says that this is a very important question. And he says to answer this question, we need to go back to Shasu Poiskim. Now, it's interesting that the Qsam and the Maramash do not do what we would call a definitive, from the sources, um, examination. W.C. Hoffman felt that he wanted there to be on record, because he published this tshuva,
1: a clear psaq. And he says, I'm not going to just base it on what my heart tells me.
0: I'm going to sh- go to the sources themselves in the Talmud, Shas and Paiskin. Basically, uh, the Gemara and Shabbos uh, that is quoted by the Sifrey, that Abduvzi often was very aware of, says that three days before Shabbos, you're not supposed to begin a siege against the city. A siege against the city, as it's clear, wasn't a mitzvah, it was meant because the government has decided that we want to expand. Uh, the territories we need to we need our people to live in more space. Uh, whatever the purpose was behind the war, so the mission of the Bryces says that we don't begin this siege three days before Shabbos. Now, why only three days before Shabbos? Don't we begin it? The reason is is because you know the siege is going to involve uh, cutting down trees and other sorts of military techniques, which are obviously a of Shabbos. However if it's on Monday, Tuesday, which is more than three days, you are able to begin that siege. Why? So the Balamor writing on this Gemara and Shabbos says, because basically when you start something and because the event eventually leads to a Chil Shabbos, that's not your problem. You're not being Machal Shabbos now. At the time that it occurs, and now it's Shabbos. And if we don't cut this tree down, the enemy is gonna with his sniper is gonna kill us. So now it's Bikuach Nefesh. But the question is: should you have started this before? So when you knew it would result in an emergency situation that would force you to machal Shabbos to save your life. So the the Bryce says, hmm, well, if it's done on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. That looks bad because that looks like you're sort of using Shabbos. So, therefore, start on Monday, Tuesday. Even though it might, it sounds like it's going to lead to Chilul Shabbos, it doesn't look as bad. So, therefore, the Bryce is telling us that if you have your choice, start the operations in the week earlier before Shabbos, so it doesn't. You're not giving over the appearance that you're starting something that's going to lead to Chilul Shabbos. However, the Balamor writes that that's because the siege is not necessarily a mitzvah. It's, you know, it's part of what the king wants. But if what's being done is a mitzvah, and this would include going you know, on a travel situation, starting a travel situation on a train or on a boat or on a caravan in the desert, if it was a mitzvah involved, you can start it even before Shabbos. So basically what the, what the Balamor is writing is that you can get involved in activity, which is itself positive, even though you know that activity will force you under pressure to be machal Shabbos and machal other mitzvos. And that's the, and this Balamor is quoted by the great North African postkin, the Rivoche and his Barpluk to the Rashbats, Semach Ran and Isaac to ran the revosh and the Rashbats, the Halacha, that even though you know it's going to lead to Chilu Shabbos, you are able to start something like this, like before Shabbos, because you're not doing it on Shabbos itself, even though you know the activity will lead to Chilu Shabbos. Based on this Baal Amor and the way it's interpreted by the important... Uh,
1: postgum at the end of the period of the Rishonim, Rabbi Dabit says, therefore, by the fact that you decided to serve in the army, it's more than a Dvar Mitzvah. It's more than starting a Mitzvah where you can start
0: the event and even though it leads you to be forced to do averos, which is the case of the balamor, the case that's la locha like the tashbaitz and the rivosh, and brought in in sholchan and paskin like the Glavush. This is even better, Rav Hoffman says, because if you don't go, then you are you cause a chilu hashem, because im yevoda because it'll turn out that if you don't go, that is going to cause repercussions. Because people will find out that the Jews aren't going to serve. The anti-Semites will say the Jews aren't serving. So he says, <laughs> clearly, going to serve, whether <laughs> uh, even if you would serve, let's say, starting on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, even though by Shabbos you'd have to, uh, you'd have to build bridges and make uh, sailor
1: knots, would be allowed. But if, you, if, if the reason you're going
0: is to do a mitzvah, you could even do that right before Shabbos. Even though it's clear, everybody knows when you're going that on Shabbos you're going to be Machal
1: Shabbos. So when you're doing something that's a mitzvah, And before Shabbos, your going is a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah for the Jews to show that they are
0: good citizens. They are saving, and they are saving other Jews from pogroms that might occur by the actions if they try to get out of service. And for sure, here you're not really in the cases in the balamor. The man has decided. He wants to take this trip. The man has decided that, he, or the king has decided that the war should occur. Here, you didn't decide that. You're a citizen of this country and the draft
1: is forcing you to go. So to get out of it, even though you know that by going, you are definitely
0: going to be Machal Shabbos and you're definitely going to eat treif through your military service, But if you don't go, it's going to cause
1: terrible repercussions. So it's even bigger than a dvar mitzvah. Mm -hmm. Rabbi Hoffman continues and says that if I give a psaq that says you should try to do to get
0: out of it, which you remember was the psaq of the previous generations, and, and the Maramash said, do whatever you can to get out of military service. He says, if this, by the time Hoffman was writing, there was such a, um, a, 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 a laser like focused eyes on what the Jews were doing, that if this guy buys his way out, then what's going to happen? Everyone is going to try doing this to get out of it. And what's going to happen? Some will be successful. Others won't. And what's going to happen? It's not just going to be one story. It's going to be en masse. Jews are trying to get out of service. Not just one Jew that we found out about. But it's going to cause a wave of Jews to begin to take
1: these options. So therefore, he says, do what's right. Follow the king.
0: And you never know. Maybe you can speak to your officers and you'll explain how religious you are. They'll allow you to not do on Shabbos. the be Because if you are doing this L'shem Shemayim, God will help you. And you'll see, God will be able to help you. And therefore he's hopeful that the type of service that will occur there will be a, one that won't involve that. And maybe you'll be able to get your commanding officer to uh, allow you to have a special diet or something like that. So the, Rabbi Davidsi Hoffman, in effect, is saying how important that service is and that if Jews seem to want to uh, do whatever they can to resist it, they are causing uh, an incredible chilo Hashem. Okay, so as you can see, this is really a, a, a number of stages removed. Now, it's not, it could be, of course, again, as I mentioned at the beginning of this year, that things changed from 1840 to whenever this shuva was written in, in the early part of the 20th century. Clearly, the, the, the global anti-Semitism movement had arisen. and Because of that, that could really explain why the different attitude. But I do think there's more to it than that. I do think that Rabbi W. C. Hoffman really did believe in the, the importance of showing patriotism and being connected to that
1: As uh, Dr. Bleich uh, writes,
0: uh, for Hirsch extols the positive religious duty of serving in the army in defense of one's fatherland. Now, Dovizie Hoffman, although he had, was a great admirer of Hirsch, uh, and many times, many times, however, he did disagree. Here, I think, perhaps, from David C. Hoffman's words were influenced by Rev Hirsch. Hirsch says, that when you serve in the army, you should fulfill it with love and pride. The outward obedience to laws of a country must be joined by the inner obedience to be loyal to the state with heart and mind, to guard the honor of the state with love and pride. And I think that as Ref Hirsch writes in Chorev, loyal citizenship is an unconditional duty. And it does it's not dependent upon whether the state is kindly intentioned toward you or is harsh. Which means even if you realize that there's anti-Semitic factions. And there's ways that they don't care about Jews. There's a lot of James Bakers in the State Department. We have a responsibility to understand how prideful it is that they are letting us be part of this. And I think if Rev Hirsch, and we don't see often, were commenting about what was happening in terms of resisting the draft here in the United States, I assume that their PSOC would be even stronger in terms of pushing Jews to not just... (laughs) go off to canada and do whatever it takes i would assume that they would assume that they would um, say yes don't fill the ranks of the yeshivas but actually go and serve with pride for what the united states stands for and in a way again that is in a sense the minority but i think it's important voices that need to be heard